Welcome to the Roots of the Spirit podcast. I'm your host, Spirit Tafik. I'm a social justice passionista and daughter of the civil rights movement. This podcast is my commitment to serve as an intergenerational bridge and galvanize change by having honest conversations about identity, the social construct of race, racism, and social justice. Welcome to Roots of the Spirit. Hello to my beloved Roots of the Spirit community. It's a pleasure to be back with you for another episode. Today's guest, Mark Stoddart, has been a visual communicator for over 30 years. Combining his passion for music and sports with a spirit of social activism and commitment to educate and unite, he is a brand designer, visual artist, and founder of the clothing company under the Lee Wee 68, which stands for Live It Wear It 68 brand. Under that brand, he works with Dr. John Carlos, an advocate for human rights and the 1968 Olympic sprinter who silently protested with his raised fist on the podium in Mexico City. His conceptual ideas reflect his personal commitment to celebrate the passion, struggle, and accomplishments of black artists and athletes who broke color barriers and came to stand as symbols of North American culture. Earning a passion for storytelling by speaking truth to power at a young age, Mark's artwork has been exhibited at several galleries and private events around Toronto in recent years. Mark enjoys a residency where he leads a group of intermediate students in a large-scale social justice and well-being-inspired art piece integrating personal and universal scripts. It is my pleasure. We had the most magnificent conversation. Without further ado, please welcome Mark Stoddart. Welcome to the Roots of the Spirit podcast, Mark. It's an honor to have you on the show. Well, thank you for asking me to be a part of this. I appreciate it. I've been following your career for many years, pre-social media. I first found out about you being an artist in Toronto through my brother, Isaiah Tricky, who is a professional photographer in Toronto, and my mother, Minnie Jean Brown Tricky, who is was deeply involved in the civil rights movement and an activist to this day, to participate in one of your line that you produced featuring artists and activists and singers, musicians, etc. If you want to talk to me a bit about that, that would be great. Yes, Mr. Tricky and your mother, probably it's 10 years now since I came up with the concept of, um, I always felt as an artist, how do we document narratives of our of our stories properly and kind of preserve them in the right way, especially when you live in an area that's through a lot of talent. I combined my idea with another local photographer, which is a good friend of mine, Nathaniel Anderson, and I wanted to kind of honor the community. And um, I stopped doing clothing just for a while. I just kind of get to resurface to start. The bug was always left, was still in me to start doing t-shirts again. So 10 years ago, I just came up with this idea. I just wanted to produce shirts and um, just give them out. It kind of gets spun into more of the community being involved in what I was doing. So my first photo shoot, I did it on, everything is for me, it's, it's all about synchronicity. I mean, I, I can't even pronounce the word now, but I'm just trying to connect things properly. And um, I did it on April 4th, the day of Dr. King being assassinated. And I wanted to honor that and preserving the heritage of our stories and doing a photo shoot. So my first photo shoot with the line, it was called Live It Wear It. Oh, it wasn't Live It Wear at that time. It was just a random t-shirt with the fist on it. And it was just 1968. So called a few of my friends, everybody came, Saida Stage, which is Salome Bay's daughter. She came in with her husband, Click, at my first photo shoot. Other local people like Mark Strong that works for G987, he came by. Dwayne Azario was another a local soccer player. A lot of people came and showed support. And from that, photos, capturing them and then documenting them through the photos, their stories. From that moment, social media wasn't really that big at that time. And just posting them up and documenting them on the, 
on our website, people just were moved by that. Like they never seen it before. And I'm like, okay. So from the next time around, I did it again. More people came by and supported it. So it just galvanized organically. More people came and supporting the whole movement from that. And it, it worked very well. Up to now, people still asked to be photographed. I'm like, I stopped doing it. But from 10 years ago, people still remember it from day one. So that for me was a, was a spark for me. So like I have something going here. How do I keep mobilizing and building off of this momentum? And still to this day, I still do it. Not like how I've done it, like I did before, but on my birthday, I'll do a pop-up shop that people come get a local or a new design I come up with and people come get their photograph taken by and level supporting me. So it still works. So yeah, that was the spin-off of how it all came out 10 years ago which is pretty crazy. That's amazing. And like I mentioned, and you mentioned as well, that social media wasn't a thing back then. How did we even do it? (laughs) It's crazy because now there's a little technical stuff that you can't do. Like when I did it on Facebook, you were able to tag people. Now you're limited to tagging people. That time you you have the choice to tag them, whoever. So what was happening? It's the level of the the ego. So when you give this person their photo, they're going to post it right off the bat. Mm -hmm. And then other people will see it. And then they will share it. And they're shared to among their friends. But if it's something that's worthy in the way that how it's been documented and what's the material behind it, people are inquisitive. They want to know. And they will go to the base or go to the website. And that will move more people. So I'm like, all right, I got an idea behind this. It's working. It really is. And this, it kind of gets to put a fart back in my butt in a way. Like, I got to keep doing more of this. That time I was still working. No, that year I left my job or I, I downsized. And I've pretty much said, I got to do this full time and just dive in and just be a, a full entrepreneur. And since then I've been working for me. I haven't worked for anybody else. I didn't realize that that was part of your stories. I always find it so courageous. And I love the story about that, that turning point, like the fork in the road, having to make that decision and following your heart and your passion and going out on your own and becoming a full-time entrepreneur. So I'm really excited to dive into that. I'm going to go back a bit. So I met you through your artistic endeavor and creating the t-shirts where you featured my brother Isaiah, my mother Minnie Jean. It's funny how I met your brother because again the community of Toronto's it's it's weird that how with when the love of consciousness when you just know the right the people are doing the right thing and just and staying true to their passion. Your brother's one who's been pretty consistent at documenting story through his eyes through the lens of, as a photographer. I remember one story which he has of me. I was I'm still up to this day. I'm, I'm an avid Spike Lee fan. And um, Spike Lee was in Toronto doing a book signing. It's from the Do the Right Thing. It was uh, kind of just the chronicle of, of Do the Right Thing. And it was a giant book. And he was doing a, a speaking engagement. And I always wanted to meet Spike. I had this one illustration I did when I was in college of him when he did the Malcolm X movie. So the illustration is, is his arms folded like the letter X. And he's holding onto the buildings. And it has the World Trade Center building folded into his, his arms, pretty much indicating that it's his time. And it's like the letter X. And he has the Malcolm X hat on. And I always wanted to get that to Spike Lee. So I made a copy. And my first attempt was with a friend of mine that she's a makeup artist. And it didn't happen at that time. So this moment came around. I'm in Scarborough. And the funny thing with that part of living in Scarborough, to getting downtown at 4 o'clock on the DVP, you're not going to make it on time. <laughs> no. <laughs> It's insane. So the one thing I always knew, I had growing up, I had this vision board. And on my vision board is an image of Spike Lee, like one of the people I had to meet. So I didn't know. I just knew that this was going to be the day. I kid you not, when I'm on the DVP, on the four o'clock, when it was supposed to be traffic, there was no traffic. The road was open. I got through to the DVP all the way downtown. And I was like the last or second last person in line to meet Spike Lee. And so when I got to meet Spike, he signed the book. He's telling me who, who you want me to sign it to. I said my name. He goes, he put Big Mark. I'm like, okay, cool. And I showed him 
the piece that I did, and I wanted to give it to him. He was blown away by it, and um, I gave that to him. I also gave him the T-shirt up the fist on it as well. I gave him everything that I had just to try to sell myself to him. Did it work? I built a business relationship with him? No, but just the point of me meeting him for the first time was probably one of the surreal moments. And your brother took a picture of me and Spike because he gave us tickets. He gave me tickets after the event to come upstairs and chill with him. And he took pictures of me and Spike. So yeah, that was my moment. I had to kind of give kudos to your brother on that part. That's so beautiful. And I think it's a testimony to being in alignment with your passion, kind of in like an energy field with people who are doing similar work, especially when it is in line with social justice. That's what I notice about what I'm doing. And I'm glad that it all worked out. You know what the irony is? The book you're referring to that Spike Lee put out, it was kind of like a a handwritten draft with photographs for Do the Right Thing. He actually has that on his Instagram today. Yeah, right. (laughs) Isn't that crazy? (laughs) So yeah, that's pretty awesome. I'm born and raised in Canada, but I now live in the, I've lived in the U.S. for 19 years, but I'm definitely I still feel very well connected with my Canadian roots. That's my home. And so I kind of keep up vicariously through my brother, Isaiah. And I know he admires your work very much. He's always a bit supportive of what I've been doing, which is great. It's the hardest thing with being an entrepreneur is how do you build your brand equity of people continuing to support what you do? Because sometimes how do you stay relevant that people are there for you? Because sometimes I always question that. Do I have it here? Do I have to go to the U.S.? Because what I speak to, sometimes a lot of Canadians don't get it. So do I dumb dumb my way of seeing things and creatively am I too radical in my viewpoints do I have to feed the people information that they can digest easier or do I go hard again so I'm always challenging myself because this year as, as you know the Toronto Raptors won yeah so I'm like man do I actually jump on that bandwagon and create a Raptor shirt because everybody asking for it I'm like all right so I just did my own little concept of that simple design but it made me that whole month of that run with the Raptors I ain't gonna lie like it was good money but if I did it, if I did a flip side to something conscious of it, I'm trying to fight, the, not fight people, but try to get people to buy into it. But something a little more easier or more palpable for people to digest, they're on it. So I'm always trying to figure out what can I create in a way that I can create that kind of audience if you just want something like that. That's always the battle of creating. It's always figuring out a lot of people will not get what, what I create or they're not ready for it. I totally hear you. It's like a dance. It's like in and out. And I learned something recently that you just made me think of and it kind of along those lines. Sometimes we have to take on things that might give us more of a leverage, whether financial or networking or otherwise, to be able to do the things we're truly passionate about. And sometimes, especially because our history has not been told in the United States and in Canada, it's like going uphill or swimming upstream because I feel like the education, it happens in tandem with the business side, but sometimes there's more groundwork that has to be done before it can be become you know a commodity so to speak and I don't mean commodity in terms of like product so much but something that we can actually sell well when you say that I always think as an artist it's like black art in the U.S. it's more of a commodity that people want to have that because they know the value of having good art in their homes and how to have something that's bigger than you that is for your family it's an investment here, it's still that battle of not being informed and be educated behind it, right? Mm-hmm. So again, there's a lot of talented Black artists here, but they don't get in the, the due rights of, of sustainability. How do you sustain based on the craft of your, of your gift here? It's hard. It's hard. It's not too many Black artists here really living comfortably as you can go into the U.S. You can see a lot of Black artists are doing very well for their work. So I get where you're going with that. I can hear my brother telling me his frustrations as we speak. Trust and believe. (laughs) It's 
hard, like, and that's the, t- and, but that's with anything. You have to stay true to what you do and stay consistent with it, right? Mm-hmm. And you're going to get those bumps regardless. That's the part of this business, but you have to stay with it, right? And like you said, you align yourself with people who will come around to be a part of it. You just got to be patient for it, right? Yeah. I've been doing it long enough, so I, I get it. But it gets frustrating at some parts, right? But, yeah, yeah, especially if you've invested decades. Yeah, it's a lot of years. <laughs> So I'm interested in learning about your upbringing. I'd like to talk about your background. Where were you born? Were you born in Toronto? Where were you raised? And anything else you'd like to share about your family roots? Okay. Um, parents are from Jamaica. Um, dad left Jamaica to come to the UK and start his, his life there. And he resided in Nottingham, where Robin Hood resided. So that's my little story. I always tell the kids when I do my workshops. So, and that's where it kind of gets when the people leaving Jamaica, they will probably go strictly to Nottingham before going to Birmingham. Those are kind of the, the two areas I think a lot of people were, were residing or immigrating to. And I was born there. My dad left the UK, went to New York. He didn't stay briefly, he didn't stay long, he didn't stay long enough there and went to Canada. At the age of four or five is when he sent for all of us to come to Canada. I still remember my stories living in, in in England, but again, my claim is Toronto, living in Scarborough. My dad's only job working in Canada was working for Cadbury. So technically, I, I'm, I'm a chocolate baby. <laughs> so 30 years, 30, close to 40 years of his life working for Cadbury. So I always remember my dad coming home, they bring in products like from the chocolates, from the gums, from the halls, candies, whatever that was manufactured at that company, it was there. And um, my breakthrough was almost like I always had these sample products and I'll go to school with it and I'll make new friends because I used to give people samples. Nice. But then what I would do later on, I'll take that and sell it. So I was flipping money with, with, with chocolate. <laughs> and then I'll go to the variety store and get the stuff that I wanted to get. So that's my little young, at a young age, I became my own little entrepreneur. You caught the bug young. That's brilliant. Yeah, I didn't even know. You just, things you just picked up along the way. That being said, my dad and I, I kind of get up to the now because I'm seeing a lot of our family members transitioning and leaving this earth. Mm-hmm. And re- with this, through all these passings, I'm reconnecting with a lot of my family members. And some of my other cousins, are, are there's that disconnect because they don't know some of our family. And because we have a pretty big family. And then I went and so how do you know so many people? Because it was my dad, because he'll always pick us, take us to my cousin's house, to this, over on the weekend, go to my next cousin's house. And we'll always build and keep that kind of foundation going. So my dad was that kind of the person who was local, just keep going and connecting with all of our family members and keep everybody grounded. Mm-hmm. And I remember going to New York a lot of times with my aunt who passed away last year in the Bronx and East Chester. And her son, Norman, avid comic book collector. That was like my mentor in a way. And I always, always loved what he was doing. And he went in, in the army and stuff. But he had a, a, a collection of comic books. And that cut the bug for me to be in creative because I used to see some of his comics. And just kind of emulate drawings from that and create my own characters from just researching comic books. So that got the creative eye in, in me. That was my little love of collecting comic books at that time. And again, my dad just allowing us to travel to New York, Wherever that was, it was we're just building with family. And coming back home, the two things that kind of get stuck with me, or three things, A, being creative and drawing, soccer was my first love, and basketball were the things that kind of kept me whole, kept me kind of out of trouble, kind of kept me on a perfect path. Playing the sport that I love and, and drawing was got me through a lot of schools. I was like a rolling stone. I never really stayed in one school. I would never say I was a, a disrupted student. I just had a challenge of just wanting to learn. I kind of guess I wanted to do things my way. So I pretty much went to four different schools. So you must have 
really gotten accustomed to adapting to change because you were moving around with your family, right? They didn't move. We stayed. It was just me, school to school. So why were <laughs> so you going to so many different schools? I'm curious. They thought I had a learning disability. I didn't. I was just a kid that just didn't want to, I didn't care much. I just felt like I did things my way. Interesting that I've had various conversations with family, friends, even research about the imposition of, quote, learning disabilities on really talented and gifted young people, especially of color. Mm -hmm. Was that a part of the conversation then? Oh, big time. Big time. Because I remember having my report cards and I remember my guidance teacher had them for me and showed me from the consistency of how I, what teachers wrote about me. And I knew the parts I lacked in. Again, I wasn't comfortable with the math or the geography. It's funny enough. And now I love history, but I hated history at that time. I think it was boring to me. It was nothing was enough to intrigue me to learn more of and be, to be investigated. It was, it was the white perspective of what history is all about. Mm-hmm. And I didn't care for it. It is what it is. It's a part of the, what the, the system that we're in. I kind of guess my crossroad was in high school when I was now kind of guess resisting a little bit of what was given to me. They knew I was good in sports. And they knew I was good in art. Again, like I said to my, in, in earlier this conversation, and I remember my my first confrontation was in high school with my art teacher. And it's funny, I reached out to an old friend of mine. Um, we were in the same art class. And the reality of it, the teacher was a racist, regardless. He just had his way of seeing things and his viewpoint and the way he helped his discipline as, as an artist. And this class, whatever you put in or whatever assignment he'll give us, he'll always give the people of color C's and D's. Everybody else, pretty much average, like B's, somebody with A's, or somebody who's talented, talented, like a somebody, I don't know. It was just, you can just see the difference of him choosing the marks. Mm-hmm. And um, when I brought this up to a friend of mine. He remembered that day clearly, how he was affected by that. And I was telling him how both of us were feeling the same uh, effect by this teacher. And I remember one time I stayed up late on one of our assignments and um, created the project, handed it in, and then I'm waiting for him to mark it. And lo and behold, same thing, gave me a C. And that triggered me. I just went off. I took the desk. Uh, people said that what I did, but I know I moved it, but kind of because I moved it by lifting it up a little bit towards him. So <laughs> it startled him. And um, he felt threatened. And that moment, he wanted me out of the classroom, which what happened, I got suspended. And that time in, in the early, not early, I want to say, wow, I'm going to age myself, but in that time in school, there are different um, high schools or vocational schools like Borden, Osler, these other schools that which they will take a lot of the black kids to go there. And they're aimed or directing for me to go to that school. But it was a trade school. And I wasn't about that. And I get folks, so some people needed to go for a trade school because I think technically we should have those back. For some people can't find themselves, tra- having a trade is probably a good thing to have. But I already knew what I wanted to do, but they felt that that was the best angle for me. And they were pretty much aiming to send me out of that school and, and take me to that school. But my mom stood up for me at that time and defended me, pretty much told my son's not leaving. And my guidance teacher, which I'm going back to again, in the photo of all my marks or all the schools I went to, he said that this teacher in particular had it for me. He wrote in there, goes, Mark has, Mark has a snowball chance in hell of passing my class. Wow. So at that moment, I really knew that not everybody just always has good intentions. I remember him saying to me or to my mother that your son is corrupt. And this is why I took on that, the, the onus of that name at that moment, because my mom just defended and said, no, my son's not corrupt. The system is corrupt. You guys are. And my son's staying in the school. She even went to the, the, the MP, <laughs> that how far she went to get them involved, to, to not send my son to that school. And I had to, I had to, up to now, my mom denies a little bit of that story, but 
yeah, she went to, she went to bat again to protecting me. After that moment, it kind of changed me in the way of thinking, what is my purpose? What do I have to do to, to the viewpoints of people are always going to perceive who you are? A lot of the teachers that were there protected me as well. I remember there's a few of them that were there up to this day. I still remember their names that are, that are out there that actually had my back. That year of graduating, I got nominated for, um, I forgot what it was, an award it had for, in Scarborough. And things have kind of changed for me. That being nominated for the Harry Drone Award, which I didn't even know who Harry Drone was, and then researching who Harry Drone was and then coming full circle how my connection now is with Harry Drone and their family and how I was able to meet other iconic people through Harry Drone. Like you bring that into that journey, it just shows the universe when you put something in the atmosphere, things align itself for you to happen. And so the love of consciousness came to me at that time because the first book reading at that time was Malcolm X. I've heard that story too many times. Yeah. And young people are still dealing with it. And still to this day. That's, that's why I'm, I'm so thankful that seeing this story and I'm able to go back into the schools, tell my story through these kids to say that I'm just like you when you were younger, right? And just kind of give them a vision that they can do whatever they want to do and don't allow you to be defined by your circumstances, right? So, so one of the themes that keeps coming up in every single conversation that I've had, and I'm sure it will continue to be prevalent, is representation. And you talked about history in particular, but also art which is one of your loves. But yeah, it was best thing for me to be that because my name speaks of leaving my mark and my last name, Stoddart, has art in it. It's a part of who I am, right? It's my DNA. Exactly. So, so all of these things are happening at once. You, you're facing challenges. You don't see yourself represented. As a result, when we don't see ourselves represented, then we don't feel like we exist. We don't feel like we matter. And we don't gravitate towards it. That was my experience to the T. And I'm wondering how the collision of all of this and reading Malcolm X at the same time, how did that shape your next step, whether it was college or going right out into the workforce? What happened next? It prepped me to get into college and being prepared with the same battles of just um, staying true to who you are. Because leaving Scarborough now, because again, I'm traveling. So now I, I, I graduate and now I'm going to Oakville. I'm going to the whitest of whites areas. I had to stay true to who I am because that time the music scene was with the public enemies, the X-Clan, the brand Nubians. That music was a part of who I was and I'm just absorbing all that and the stuff that I was reading. So I was ready to battle anybody when it comes to my blackness, right? And going to Oakville, <laughs> you're definitely going to be seen as as, as that, that militant black guy or the guy who's outspoken. Funny enough, that journey was interesting for me because I'm trying out for the basketball team because my, my last year for high school was was a great year for me. Like I said, everything was going well for me. Nominated for the Air Drum Awards, all-star basketball. The arts was moving, going down, going to Sheridan College my first year, leaving home. And just being, just like I said, staying true. Funny enough, my first year, thinking that I was the guy on the block, because I don't think I was that good. But these guys are 10 times better than me. And I didn't make the team. I, I, was, on, I was on the outs of not making the team my first year. But I think... My saving grace is that my personality and who I was, a lot of people liked me. And they felt that if Mark could just stay on the team, on the practice team, this, they kind of made that for me. I was the 13th member on the team. I had to earn my right to stay on the team, but change my position. Because I knew I was better than half the guys there, but I just, I wasn't comfortable. It was just a new change was happening. And the following year, after winning this, uh, we won the Nationals. We won Ontario's and won the Nationals that year, my first year, which was amazing. I think two years ago, we did... Um, an anniversary of, of accomplishments within Sheridan. And that's one of our, we're the last team that actually went back to back on the, nice. the national. 
had you declared a major like when you entered college did you know exactly what you wanted to study i know you were interested in sports but were you general yeah. or you declared a major you shared and there was um animation and there was editorial and, and design graphic design and there was illustration and design and editorial and that's how i wanted to major into i went i got into illustration as much as doing good in basketball i was feeling in, in my school marks so i had made a choice i had to quit basketball and to stick and to stick with the um, with, with the arts because that's why I came there for. It wasn't for basketball. Basketball wasn't going to get me anywhere. It was just a thing that I enjoyed, but it was the arts that was the kind of the, the driving force for me. So um, once you left the team, you were able to focus more keenly. Correct. Yeah. So talk to me about that. And it was interesting because all if I look at my old assignments, everything that I did was black. <laughs> <laughs> if there was an assignment to create something, I had to flip it. There had to be something consciously aware. I had to do it. That's the only way I'll get through the project. I remember one assignment that we did. It was called Think Outside the Box. And I remember, and I still have this project up to this day, I still have it downstairs. Because it was one of the most impactful designs that I did, which the teachers took and they put it in front of everybody within the school of um, Sheridan so people can see. Can you describe um, it? Think Outside the Box is pretty much people had to create a space that it had to intersect with with people's um, relationships with, with the world. It was just weird. And I thought to myself, think outside the box is, is how you own your space and how you project who you are and wherever that is. So as, as, as an artist, I felt, how do I think outside the box of somebody who's speaking truth to who they are? So I made my box into a podium. And within the podium, the person I wanted to be, the person speaking truth was Malcolm X. So on the podium, I made it as like the, the box in different sides was the different sides of the podium. And the top of the podium or the box was Malcolm X speaking to everybody. And on the side of podiums were the quotes of Malcolm X. So when somebody sees it, they'll see the box, but they see Malcolm X. And you see his finger pointing. You know the iconic picture of Malcolm X pointing? Indeed. So that's the picture that I had that I created as an illustration. And then with the foam core of the box, I made these holes of Malcolm X, and then I made a, another foam core of, of his finger pointing. So if you look at a different perspective, you see this person pointing at you. Wow. I don't know what I came out of that, but teacher took that one, and it was pretty big. They put that up on the front of everybody, and everybody got to see it. I'm what like, was their crap. reaction? I, I don't remember, but I just remember that everybody made these small boxes. I made my box pretty big. <laughs> So I remember people were like, what the hell are he doing? So I just went outside. I totally went outside the box and made something bigger. You may not have remembered what they said or what their actual reaction was, but what did it feel like for you? It felt moving because I felt that I had a, a space that a lot of people could, well, can take heed to what I was doing. And that wasn't compromising it, right? Mm -hmm. I was pretty much staying true to what resonates to me. It's more of a, it's an affirmation for myself. Okay, this is where... I'm comfortable in, and I want to continue doing that. Because from that, I remember at, um, at Sheridan, there was we had to go to Brampton and also Oakville. So I did my two years in Brampton, I did my two years in Oakville, and there was no black organization. So I said, you know what? I'm with, and all the black people used to congregate in the front. I'm like, you know what? And we had an hour everywhere hanging out. I'm like, why not just take this hour and just get a space, and um, I'll get the videos. And I was finding all these videos, like with um, Dr. Ben, um, Malcolm X, Farrakhan, and I have all these DVDs that I used to collect, that I used to record, or my cousin would get me some videotapes and stuff that we had. At that time, we were using VHS. <laughs> it's not like we could get online, go to the AV room and get the, um, the TV, bring into the, the foyer or into the room, and we create our own little African, I forgot what we called it, but it was, it was our own little club that everybody would come at lunchtime and hang out, 
and have these, these conversations. Play the video for 30 minutes and have a dialogue. And we did it every time at lunch. You were creating so many different things. Yeah, and I haven't even started. This is the part that's is kind of crazy for me because now you got me start thinking. My first interaction again with my level of consciousness was two things. Having the, the poster of Tommy Smith and Dr. Carlos and Peter Norman on my wall always knowing about what they did, but not knowing the full ramifications of it. And now knowing that it all ties into who I am. And then Stokely Carmichael, Kwame Ture, uh, when he came to Toronto in the early 90s, he came to UFT to do a, a speaking engagement and I got to meet him. And at that time, um, our sketchbooks, we had to always create live drawings of things that we see. So I did my first sketch there. Well, not, not my first, but I've been, always been sketching, but seeing him for the first time, I did my own sketch of him. And up to this day, I still have the sketchbook. He signed it for me. And he said, everything for our people, even art. And he signed it. Beautiful. And that, for me, is surreal. To meet somebody who's iconic and what he stood for and have him sign something I did of him, and he signed it for me. So again, these little small gems of affirmation just sparked more what my purpose was, how I'm going to be leaving my imprint to today. Every experience that you have, it's like laying this golden foundation. You don't even necessarily, not you, but one does not even necessarily know what they're creating, but it's like you're building a solid foundation. And it's exactly. the next step. That being said is that I knew where my heart was because that time was my first interaction meeting him. But at the same time, my entrepreneur spirit again, leaving high school and college, I forgot to add this part in. Like I, that's when I did my first t-shirt. I created my first shirt was um, something that's iconic up to this day now is that in comic books, my favorite superhero was the Black Panther, Tychella. So my first t-shirt was him. Oh my goodness. And then, so behind him was the continent of Africa and me and a group of my friends called ourselves the Brotherhood. And we wore those shirts going to Carabana. I remember Carabana was on university. Oh my goodness. It was. <laughs> I know I'm aging myself at that time, but yeah, at that time was, that was when community was in a space with no Events, no nothing. You're just having a good time. I remember wearing those shirts in the subway coming up onto university. And people thought we were instant celebrities. Like, who the hell are you guys, man? Because we mm -hmm. all looked like uniform. People had our nicknames on the back of their shirt. I'm like, okay, me as an artist, if I create things and it's getting people's reactions, I know I have something. I can keep building off of this. Having that shirt at that time, that got me into the creating, getting into the t-shirt business. I said, let me start doing t-shirts. That came out with the first company, which was called The Brotherhood. So it's a group of myself, my cousin, and my three other good friends. That was the same time when two black guys came out with Adrian. So when he was doing his shirts, we were doing our shirts. So at that time, the level of consciousness in Toronto was happening. Everybody was doing things. It was good times. It was good times. It was the level of understanding the business of creating and allowing people to buy your product and whatever that was, right? Wow, that's amazing. I had so many two black guys, like shorts and stickers and all kinds of stuff. And actually, I was walking down the street in Harlem two years ago, and I saw someone with a two black guys shirt on. I was really excited about that. <laughs> yeah, I totally understand. Like, I have a great sense of what was going on and the fact that you were really, like, blazing new ground. Yeah, but it's not just me. It was a lot of us were doing it, right? You just had to find your lane. And so what, and Adrian, I think I'm always a fan of Adrian for what he's done uh, as, as, a, as a designer, especially for Toronto. And then again, line yourself with the right people at that time and within the music industry and how they're able to come to the city, these artists, and then having a space to buy something that's black owned. 
And I remember because when Adrian started off, he started off with Mr. Johnson, the Thurwood Bookstore, on the Bathurst. That's where Adrian got his start, was downstairs in his basement. The Thurwood Bookstore was the community space for Black people to come. That was, everybody was there, click getting books of knowledge and knowledge itself was there. Everybody would go there. Live it where it's 68. Yes. I mentioned earlier, I'm very familiar with your work as an artist, as a graphic designer. I follow you on Instagram and all types of social media. And so when I went to do research to prepare for the interview, I saw that Live It Where at 68, your online boutique, consists mm-hmm. of three different arms, so to speak, and I'll let you describe it for yourself. But John Carlos 68, Live It Where It 68, and Mark Stutter. Initially, when I saw 68, my mind went directly to John Carlos. However, correct. correct me if I'm wrong, that's actually not where 68 initially came from. No. No. So the irony is insane. Okay. Like everything happened in 68. So talk to me about that. Yeah. A lot of things happened in 68. So for me, when I started doing t-shirts in the early nineties, I stopped because, uh, you know, life changes. You need to find a job. <laughs> you need sustainability. I worked for a lot of good companies. I worked for much music. I worked for another digital company at that time when the internet was kind of growing. So I was, in, I was kind of guess I was evolving and changing in, in the times. I start, I did another clothing line, dealing with basketball. I just did a lot of things, but stopping and going, stopping and going. Still doing graphic design, but not as much as producing shirts or designing on shirts. And um, a good friend of mine, um, it's all about transitions again. I always go back to this, is that his passing changed my whole perspective for me. Uh, because when he passed... It, it kind of shocked the whole community as a whole in Scarborough. And um, his name was Sean Rose. His nickname was Blue in Malvern. And he was well-loved within the community. And when he, when he transitioned, it brought a lot of people to, to his, his, um, his viewing or to his funeral. I thought to myself, seeing so many people come to his passing and give honor to him, I thought to myself, if it's my time, I have to at least impact the world in a way that people can at least be there for me or when I'm, when I'm gone. I thought, the only way that's going to happen, I have to do the things that I love. I can't just do the nine to five things because people are not, not going to remember what I, what I worked for. It's, I think people will be impacted with what I've done when it comes to something that's true to who I am. So I left my job or pretty much they're downsizing. So it was a perfect time not to re- renew the contract. I said, forget it. I'm just going to work for me. And one of my bigger goals was that I wanted to do an art installation and create 40 paintings before I turned 40. And so I put time and energy into that. And I actually accomplished that goal. And from that, just kept doing the things I love to do, which is art, and then creating, still continue to create. And then I got back into the shirts. So in doing the shirts, I didn't have a name. I just knew that 1968 is iconic based on, like you said, with the John Carlos and Tommy Smith demonstration in Mexico City, Dr. King being assassinated in 68, the Vietnam War was going on, Muhammad Ali's belt being stripped in Canada, Lincoln Alexander, our first lieutenant governor, was elected in 1968. Bob Marley's son, Ziggy Marley, was born October the 17th, 1968. And funny enough, they passed the legalization for marijuana on the October the 17th, 1968. That's coincidence? I don't know. But <laughs> And then for myself, being born in December 17th, 1968, I thought that was a perfect starting point of creating something based on my birth, my birthright. So it's great because I can actually tell the story through all those events and also bring, bring it back full circle of who I am in 68. 
sound like the last seed of the uh, of, of the revolution. And it hasn't changed from that. So doing that and still staying true to that, things keeps aligning itself towards that. My relationship now with Dr. Carlos has been surreal for me. Not knowing something out on the wall allowed it to massive manifest itself that I'm um that that's like my dad. That's like, like my stepfather. It's like he's there's so many different layers of who he is. And just sitting down with him and when you hear stories of Dr. King, Malcolm X, all these iconic figures, and then sitting down with him and he speaks to that and saying that he was with them. He walked with them. He sat with them. That brings me even closer to knowing that I'm a part of, of history. So that is something I cannot take away from them. I'm so thankful of being in his in his presence and allowing and him allowing me to actually tell his story through my story and allowing me to build his brand has been surreal for me. And I'm thankful for that because that doesn't happen to anybody, right? So I feel like that would be a whole podcast episode within itself. How you became reconnected with Dr. Carlos and how the business partnership blossomed. I'm sure there's so much, but could you give me a snapshot? I give you one one scenario. Well, that's it's not a scenario. It's 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 pretty. Again, the universe does things in a way that you just see that it's the right thing that things happen. And sometimes you always question or doubt yourself that why am I here? Why is this happening to me? But like I said, the universe gives you these omens of things or symbols that you're on the right track. So for me, it's numbers and numbers that at the right time come visibly for me. Like um, I always look at the number 68. So I have my last, my friends laugh at me. So sometimes when I see it, like every time I start doubting myself, I see the number come somewhere. And it's kind of reconnects me to, okay, Mark, you're okay. Just stay true to what you're doing. Like recently, I started questioning something, and then all of a sudden I see a commercial, random commercial, and then you see this guy in the commercial wearing a, um, a jersey, football jersey, but it says 60 on it. I'm like, what the hell? <laughs> so, again, this brings me back to the clarity again. Okay, that stays, that stay focused, things that are supposed to happen in, in, in God's time. Um, so with Dr. C, he invited me to, to, he had to do a book tour, and it was going to the U.K. His first time I went to the U.K. No, he's been there before, but he's going there again to do his book tour with a, and he wanted me to be a part of this thing. I'm like, holy crap, I get to go back home to England and I get to go tour with, with, with my mentor. That's surreal. So for a whole month, I'm touring with Dr. Carlos, parts of England, like going to Scotland and London. And then we got to go to Birmingham, but going to Birmingham, you had to, you had to go to Nottingham. And I had, and his uh, hero was Robin Hood. And he always wanted to know where Robin Hood resided. So I had the opportunity to take him to see Robin Hood's there where the castle was and the statue where Robin Hood was. So that's my little aha moment with him. And I remember we're in London. He asked me, we're just eating food or having lunch. And he taps me on the show. He goes, Mark, would you ever thought that you'd be hanging with me or being part of my life right now? I'm like, no. I was like, nah, I could never think this. But then this hearing him say that to me and, and connecting it, that's like, wow, things just happen that way, man. I just don't know. It's just like you said earlier in this conversation that when you put yourself in the, of knowing your purpose, everything kind of, aligns itself and kind of manifests it to what it's supposed to be for you. And you just have to accept it and run with it, right? That is so magnificent. Can you describe the type of merchandise and art that you sell all with the message of sparking insightful conversations? I think for me, it's, it's, I define myself more of, more of a visual communicator. Because I always feel like my journey has never been labeled as just a painter or a graphic designer or t-shirt guy. I always feel that there's different mediums that I'm able to kind of portray stories through, right? To different mediums. So I always like, I'm, I'm a visual communicator. And I always feel that what I convey has to be something that speaks truth to power in the way of um, owning the right stories, the right narratives of stories, right? And if I'm doing that correctly, I think I'm doing a pretty good job. So my paintings now, 
I haven't painted in a while, but I think I'm taking on the format of doing more digital designs. Mm-hmm. Like one of the series that I'm working on right now, as we speak, I'm a, I'm a fan of, of historical information. So like news articles at that time and how it's been written and how, how biased it could be based on the writers. It's like taking those stories and actually illustrating those stories through, uh, through a visual lens of somebody that you know or that you can recognize. Like I've done series of like with Jackie Robinson, Muhammad Ali, Jim Brown, um, um, Harry Jerome. Anybody who's iconic in their own rights have done something, I want to kind of tell their stories through news clippings. Through the news clippings, you see the person. It's been a pretty good series I've been doing. I, I think it's it just needs a little bit more exposure in the right way. And then I kind of I dumb it down by just now taking the news articles, but then just using the words of the particular person, like a Dr. King, but just using the word Martin, broken in pieces, but then within, you know, that the articles still tell who that person is. So I've done that. I think that's done very well for me. And then just creating simple designs, like catchphrases, like stay woke was a catchphrase probably two years ago, which people will speak to your consciousness. And I tapped into that at the right time. So I did my own little stay woke shirts, which people bought into because at that time, everybody was, and again, I think I'm going back to it again. If you can find something that is a language that people can speak to mm-hmm. or part of, of, and you can tap into that properly, that you don't have to force it, people will just support it. So I know the stay woke component, it, it was a good moment of galvanizing the community as a whole to, to represent that. I always feel the fist is always universal. People, when the people see the fist, they, they understand it as a level of unifying all of us as one, as a level of resistance. It's, it's timeless. They were using that fist as a level of resistance all over the world. So if you can kind of coin that in a way of like telling your, your narrative behind that, it, it brings people to support it. I'm just, like I said, I'm just aligning myself in the right way of building my, my legacy through those, those strong stories. And then from those stories become my story. Well, it definitely speaks very powerfully and it speaks volumes. And the great thing, I feel like just following you over the years, you are able to adapt to what's going on in the current moment, but also keep the, the weight and integrity of the history and how it's all connected. And it's so funny that you never know who you connect with. There's many incidents. But I'll give you one one moment that, which, as a business person, you always got to tap in opportunities. Like when uh, with me and Doctor C, again, I don't know how this happens, but it happens sometimes. You always, you never know how you connect with people. So there's a gentleman named Francis Maxwell. He does these um, TYM. He's this um, Young Turks. That's what it is. He's he's one of the commentators on that. He's a he's a ally up for Colin Kaepernick. And I've seen that. And I'm like, okay, how do I align myself to kind of get to Kaepernick but going through a different channel of getting to Kaepernick? And I saw how he's been a, a big ally for Kaepernick at that time. Or still at this time is going on, but early when Kaepernick was, was really building a, a momentum of what he was doing, was taking that stance. And so I reached out to him on, on the Instagram world and DM Francis and told him who I was. And I would love to figure out how to give him a care package to him. Not to, to, um, to Ka- Kaepernick, but to him. And he appreciated it. I sent it over to him. He loved it. And then um, probably a year after, he started recognizing that my relationship with Dr. Carlos, because he didn't even know I had a relationship with Dr. Carlos, really. He thought I was, just, I was just doing something. I go, no, I work with him. And he goes, oh, that'd be great if I could meet with him. And I'm like, funny enough, we're in New York, and Dr. C will, will gladly meet or talk to you. But Dr. C was asking if it's possible if you can align us meeting with Kaepernick. And he goes, I don't know, but I can give it a shot, blah, blah, blah. Within the hour, we got to meet Kaepernick. No way. Yeah, so, but that again, and I look at it as, as building relationships. So without me reaching out to, to Francis, well, this that, that connection could never uh, 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 occurred. Again, I felt like 
to me, that moment felt like when you know the image of Dr. King meeting Malcolm X for the first time. Yeah, of course. Iconic. Yeah. It's the same thing with the Kaepernick and Dr. C for the first time. Two people on the same pathway of, of, of speaking to what their what their purpose is. And that was, yeah, it's 50 years, like 50 years up to the T of what he, Dr. C made that demonstration is when he met Kaepernick. That must have been quite the special moment. You never know who you connect with. And so with that moment, I built a relationship with their camp and then I sent Kaepernick a package, a care package of products. You never know what aligns to him. Kaepernick is a Malcolm X fan. So I give him all the Malcolm X, because he doesn't wear hats, but he just wears t-shirts. So I give him all the Malcolm X designs that I came up with. And out of all the designs that I gave him, he wore three of them that I see him constantly wear. Like, it's not like when you wear it as a photo op, but if you wear them all the time, that means you must like the product. That is so cool. Now I'm going to go look at his Instagram. <laughs> That's awesome. That is so cool. Speaking of which, you are working with some really amazing people like Dr. Carlos. So on your website, it says that you are open to working with or partnering with like-minded businesses and individuals. You're open to collaboration. So I'm wondering, like for someone who's listening, say they're an artist, how would one who is interested in working with you spark that conversation? It's easy to send me an email. If for the hour you're inspired by this conversation and if you want to reach out to me, please, um, my email is pretty simple. It's info at liwi68.com. Hit me off of that or the Instagram, which is simple again, is liwi68. Facebook is Mark Lee Stoddard. There's different ways of reaching out to me. Let's figure out what you have and how we can collaborate with something that we both can align with, that it speaks to what I'm doing, what you're doing. I'm open for it. I'm always game to actually networking with people. Because um, that's the only way you're going to grow. You can't be silo all by yourself. No, no man is, is one island, and you have to be a part of a movement of things, right? Thank you for sharing that. I have many other questions, but I am going to skip past everything and say that this will be a continuum. And now for my last question. Mark, what are the roots of your spirit? The roots of my spirit? Wow, that's a good question. It's it's my root is is the ancestry. I think it's the root is really connecting with our ancestors. I think there's so many people who've transitioned that are still a part of us, and that is what keeps me going. Because I don't want to be forgotten as much as they have passed. I don't forget them. So when it's my turn, I want to impact. When I leave, I want to impact people's lives that they are living. There's a favorite, favorite quote that I always love to say is, tell me the facts and I will learn. Tell me the truth and I believe, but if you tell me a story, it'll live in my heart forever. So I'm hoping we as an individual, when we tell our stories, that it lives in people's hearts, that they'll never be forgotten. And how do we kind of keep those around? So yeah, I, I, hopefully that answers your question there. That's truly beautiful, spectacular. And it's been quite an honor to have this conversation with you. Thank you so much. Yeah, no, thank you.